preface, let's begin our lesson. We begin today the third and the final main section of our outline for the book of Revelation. And this section is the section we have entitled the program of Jesus Christ. We've already covered, remember, the person of Jesus Christ when we looked at the vision of him in chapter 1. And then we spent a long time talking about the possession of Jesus Christ as we looked at his church in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now this section, all three of these sections actually come from the key verse for our outline, which is found in Revelation 119. If you don't have that verse circled, you need to do that. That's the verse for our outline. And this last section comes from the Lord's instructions to the Apostle John when he told John to write the things which shall be hereafter. And that's a a good word to support a futuristic view of interpreting scripture. All right, because it says hereafter and that hereafter we ask after what? After the church age. And so what we, what we taught you last week when we went over the interpretations for the book of Revelation is that we believe all the events after chapter 3 are yet future. They're after the church. And the Greek word supports that as well. Now in this lesson, which is entitled Translation to Heaven, we will find that as soon as the resurrected Christ finished giving John the seventh and the final Revelation church letter, which was the letter to the Laodiceans, As soon as he finished that, John, the last living apostle of the true church of Jesus Christ, heard a trumpet-like voice, and his spirit was immediately, it tells us in chapter 4, verse 2, translated into where? Into heaven. Now, this event in John's life, which occurred after he had written about the things of the church age and occurred before he would write about the time of the seven years of tribulation on earth, this event sounds very similar to the mystery of the rapture, which Paul revealed for us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Now, what we want to discuss in this lesson, then, is not only the contents of chapter 4 of Revelation, verses 1 and 2, which relate for us John's monumental experience when he was caught up into the third heaven, but we also want to take a good deal of time discussing the doctrine of the rapture of the church. Now, there are today a number of different views concerning the rapture. Some do not even believe that there is a rapture of the church at all, but they insist that the resurrection of the saints, which is what occurs at the rapture, that they insist that this resurrection occurs simultaneously with the second coming. And that the so-called secret rapture is nothing other than the second coming. That it's one and the same event. Now, I don't have a lot of time to refute that position. That would be another whole Bible study. However, let me just say at this point that there are a number of distinct differences between the two events. Between the rapture of the church and the second coming. Remember, we have told you that the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ really consists of two phases. The first phase is called the rapture. The second phase has a number of different titles. Some call it the return. Some call it the second coming. Some call it the revelation. And don't confuse the revelation with the book of Revelation. And some call it the glorious appearing. There's a a number of different names. But there are some distinctions between these two phases of the Lord's second coming. For example, in the rapture, the the Lord comes in the air. 
And in his return or his revelation, he comes to the earth. In the rapture, he comes for his saints, for the church saints. He comes to save the church, whereas in the revelation or the return, he comes with his saints and he comes to save Israel. First time he comes to save the church, second time he comes to save Israel. Also, the uh, rapture is a private coming. It will not be seen by the people on the earth. It will happen in a twinkling of an eye. It will not be seen. It's a private coming. The return will be a public coming. Everyone on the face of the earth at that time will see his return. So there are a number of distinct differences. So we do not believe, as some people do, that the rapture is one and the same thing as the second coming. Now, others who do believe that the scripture teaches that there will be a distinct rapture of the church have differences of opinion as to its timing in relationship to the seven years of the tribulation period. Now, some Christians believe that the rapture of the church will occur before the seven-year tribulation period, and this is called a pre-tribulation rapture position. That makes sense, right? It will come before, so it's a pre-tribulation rapture position. Others believe that it will occur in the middle of the tribulation period, around the three-and-a-half-year mark, the tribulation seven years. So these people are called, what would you think? mid-tribulation rapturists. They believe the rapture will occur in the middle of the tribulation. And then there are those who believe that the rapture will occur at the end of the tribulation. They believe that the church will be raptured up to heaven, join the Lord in the air, in the, in the heaven, you know, have the marriage supper of the Lamb and the, judgments, the judgment seat of Christ and all the various things that need to happen before the Lord then comes with them back down to earth. So they are different from those who put the rapture and the second coming as one event. The post-tribulation rapturists believe that the church goes up and then it comes down. The problem with that is there isn't enough time for all the various events that we know take place between the rapture and the and the second coming. And there are other reasons that we'll talk about in this lesson why I don't teach or believe in the post-tribulation rapture. Now, these are the issues that we want to look at in this lesson. The outline for our complete look at chapter 4, we will not get through the entire chapter today. We will only get as far as verses 1 and 2, but I promise you we're going to move faster than that from now on. But today we'll only cover 1 and 2. The outline up here is, first of all, we will look at the trumpet, then we will look at the translation, then next week we'll look at the throne and the throng. Now, let me mention before we discuss um, all these things about the rapture, and look at verses 1 and 2, that chapters 4 and 5 that we'll be coming to now in our study, chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, that these two chapters serve as what we could call a prologue to the seven-year tribulation period, which begins to be described for us in chapter 6. Now, in this two-chapter prologue, chapters 4 and 5, we will read about John being taken up into heaven where he then received a glorious vision 
of God himself sitting on his majestic throne. And around that throne, we will find a throng of some very unusual, you can see them pictured here, some very unusual and interesting creatures. And we will also receive a very special spiritual thrill in chapter 5 when we learn that the one who sits upon the throne holds in his right hand a scroll which no one is able to open except the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thrill for us will come when Christ himself steps forward and takes the scroll out of the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, who, of course, is none other than God Almighty. Now, this long-awaited moment in time causes all of heaven, all the heavenly host, to break forth in anthems of praise to the one who alone in all of the universe and in all of heaven is worthy to take possession of this very important document. That document is something we'll be talking about in some detail. It is the title deed to planet Earth. So chapters 4 and 5, the prologue chapters to the tribulation period, can be remembered very easily in the following manner. In chapter 4, whoops, I should keep that up there. In chapter 4, we will learn about the throne and its occupant. If you can remember that, the throne and its occupant will actually have a description of God in that chapter. Chapter 5, we will look at the scroll and its recipient. So that's just an easy way for you to remember those two chapters. Now, it's very critical that we have these two prologue chapters presented to us before we read about the devastations and the disasters of chapter uh, 6 through 18. Because these two chapters will make it very clear that the one who brings about the worldwide disasters and horrors of the tribulation period and the one who permits Satan to empower the Antichrist and cause so much deceit is the one who has the absolute right and authority to do so. Why is that? Well, because as it is demonstrated in chapter 4, he is the creator God. And, as it's demonstrated in chapter 5, he is the Redeemer God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ created men, he is the creator. He has every right, you see, to send judgment on those who willfully reject him and those who willfully rebel against him. Furthermore, because he also willingly gave his own life and shed his own precious sinless blood, to make a way of redemption for man, and yet most men have spurned his love and have mocked his cross and have refused his freely offered grace and forgiveness, this also gives him the right to move in judgment. Well, that's all I'm going to say by way of introduction. Let's look now at the first part of our outline, the trumpet, as we look at chapter 4, verse 1, which I'll read at this point. Revelation 4, verse 1, John writes, After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. The Apostle John, who in chapter 1, remember, was greatly 
privilege to see the vision of the glorified Christ standing there in the midst of seven golden candlesticks and who in chapters 2 and 3 was the human instrument chosen by the Lord Jesus to record seven very special special letters from him, from Christ, to the seven representative churches of the church age, was now being introduced to a whole new area of prophecy. I mean, he was going to have prophecy now from heaven itself. So this was something new for John. He looked, and it tells us he beheld a door opened in heaven. Now, it's interesting... To realize, and I hadn't thought about this till one of the commentaries pointed it out to me, but this is actually the third door that we read about in the book of Revelation. Back in Revelation 3.8, when the Lord was speaking to the Philadelphian church, he mentioned an open door. Remember that? Philadelphia uh, represents the mission-minded church, doesn't it? It was a church full of overcomers. It was a church full of true believers, a church full of love for the brethren and for the lost, which is why they took the Great Commission so seriously and why they were a mission-minded church. It was a church which received absolutely no words of condemnation from the Lord, and there was only other one other church like that. It was to this church the Philadelphian church, that the Lord gave this very special promise in chapter 3, verse 10. He said, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee, listen to these words, from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. We'll talk a lot about that verse in a little while. Now, there was a second door that we read about. We had an open door in the letter to the Philadelphian church, and then we had a closed door. Where did we find the closed door? Right. It was in the letter that Christ wrote to the Laodicean church, which is the apostate, lukewarm church, the church full of unbelievers. There was a closed door. Remember, Christ was standing on the outside of this closed door, knocking for entrance. So two doors, an open door for the good church, a closed door for the false church. And now we come to a third door, and it's like the Philadelphian church. It's an open door. The good church is, the true church is the one that's going to be called up into heaven. This open door, this third open door, is an open door to heaven itself. Now it's very interesting that this open door is mentioned at the end of the seven letters which prophetically spelled out for us the church age. And that this open door is mentioned at the beginning of the prologue chapters to the tribulation judgments of chapters 6 to 18. Now those who find this interesting are like myself, those who believe that the scripture supports a pre tribulation rapture of the church. In other words, the church will be raptured before the seven years of the tribulation even begin. Now, of course, if this was the only text that we had uh, available for support of a pre-tribulation rapture, if this was all we had, then we'd be on rather shaky ground. But it is not the only support text from the scripture that we have, as I'm going to demonstrate in this lesson. So John saw an open door to heaven. Now, the scripture, we say, what heaven did he see into? The scripture tells us that there are like three three doors. There are three heavens. The first heaven 
is the atmospheric heaven. The atmosphere right around planet Earth, surrounding the Earth. This is where the prince of the power of the air, Satan, currently keeps quite busy with his demonic forces in this first heaven. Then there is the second heaven, or what we would call the stellar heaven, the heaven that we look up into at night when we see all the stars in the sky. This is what we would call the universe. It's uh, the heaven full of all the solar systems and the galaxies. The third heaven, which the Apostle Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 4, is the place of God's residence. When John looked, into which heaven did he see? Do you think? The third heaven. He saw an open door into the very throne room of God. We know that from what he tells us he saw. And then he also heard something. He tells us, John tells us, that he heard a voice which was the first voice that he heard. He tells us that right there in verse 1. And that's a reference to the same voice that he had heard back in Revelation 1.10. The voice of Christ, the resurrected Christ, when he first appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos. As John had described, remember, the Lord's voice back in chapter 1 as sounding like a what? A trumpet. Now here he says again that this voice he heard calling to him from that open door had a, sounded like a trumpet. He says it was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. Now what was it that this one with a trumpet-like voice said to John from that open door? Well, he issued a command. And that command was, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. After what? After the church, right. So based upon the description of the authoritative trumpet-sounding voice being identical to the voice which belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, and also based upon the speaker's words from that open door when he said, I will show thee things which must be hereafter, which ties in perfectly with what the Lord told John he was to write back in Revelation 1.19 when he told John that he was to write the things which shall be when? Hereafter. Now he's saying, I will show you the things that will be hereafter. Based on these two things, most Bible commentators conclude that the one who issued the invitation to enter into the third heaven, the, the place of God's residence, and who promised to reveal from a heavenly perspective the future hereafter things was none other than who do you suppose? Right, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now notice that the Lord's statement of chapter 4, verse 1, includes the idea, again, here of the hereafter things. But he says that they must take place. Do you notice that word? They must take place. I will show thee things which must be hereafter. This means that the events which were foretold to John and which he, in obedience, wrote down for our benefit in chapters 4 all the way through to the end of the book where we learn about the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, that these things have been destined by God to occur. In other words, they are sure to happen. They are unavoidable. And that's where we're going in history. You know, don't worry about what's happening in the world. These things are going to happen. We see the shadows right now 
I wasn't sure we'd be here today because a lot of people were speculating the rapture would have happened yesterday. It didn't. We're still here. But it would have made sense because it was a feast of trumpets. And all of the events of Christ's life have occurred on feast days, Israel's feast days. But here we are, so maybe it's going to be another year yet. I don't know. Who knows? Could be before we go to bed tonight. But anyway, these things, these hereafter things must take place. And we're going to discuss in future lessons why this is. Why they must take place as we especially consider the scene in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. Because that scene is the key to understanding the purpose of the future events of the rest of the book of Revelation. All right, that's all we're going to say about the trumpet. Now let's go to the second part of our outline, the translation. And under this section, I've got two subdivisions. I don't know where my outline is, but here it is. Under here, we're going to look at John's translation to heaven in verse 2. And then we're going to spend the rest of our lesson talking about the church's translation to heaven. So first of all, let's look at John's translation. Starting in verse 2, he says, after he heard this voice from the open door in heaven, he says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. That's why we know it was the third heaven, because there he was before God himself. Now the reason John was called into heaven was to provide him with a divine perspective as to the purpose of the end times events. Also... John could view all the destructions going on on planet Earth. You know, when all the judgments are poured out on the Earth, he could view all those things from a heavenly perspective. So from chapter 4, verse 2, John found himself in heaven in the Spirit, which was apparently much like his experience back in Revelation 110, except that now his location had changed. Although still physically, still bodily, on the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John actually experienced being taken into the presence of the eternal throne room of heaven and before the presence of the one who sat on that throne, and of course that one is God himself. Quite an experience, wouldn't you admit? <laughs> Quite an experience. And John's brief description of God, he doesn't go into a lot of detail to tell us what God looks like because I imagine it's beyond description, but we'll talk about that next week. His description of God and then his description of both the throne of God and the throng around the throne, that's what we'll be studying in the last two main divisions of our look at chapter 4, verses uh, 3 to 11. But for the remainder of this lesson now, we want to turn our attention to the yet future day when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, much like the Apostle Paul's, I mean Apostle John's experience that we just looked at in these two verses of chapter 4, when the church will be translated into heaven and into the very presence of the eternal throne room of the eternal God. Now this is where we all have to really concentrate to stay awake and to put on our thinking caps because this is going to be a little bit difficult for some of us. Some of us will be a breeze. It will not be easy for me, I guarantee you. So pray that I can keep my thoughts together. Now the first thing to occur... After the close of the seven Revelation church letters, 
which represent, remember, you can't forget because I keep saying it, the complete church age, was the first thing that happened was the trumpet-sounding call to John to come up hither, and then immediately he was caught up into heaven. There was no self-effort on John's part. You know, when he got that command, come up hither, he didn't start jumping. (laughs) One moment he was on earth, and the next moment he was in God's presence. And yet, he hadn't died. I mean, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord when you die. But John didn't die. So John's experience here is so similar to that which the church anticipates at the rapture that many Christians have viewed the apostles' translation as a typical representation of the rapture of the church. In other words, they have seen it as a prophetic foreshadowment, a prophetic type with regards to the timing of the rapture in relation to the seven-year tribulation period. Now, as I mentioned before, if this was the only reason that we had for a pre-tribulation rapture, we would be on rather shaky ground, but it is not the only reason. Now, John was, and one of the reasons for that is because John was not truly translated as the church age believers will be translated. Because his natural body remained there on the Isle of Patmos. Believers' bodies, however, will be missing following the rapture of the church. Both those who are in their graves, their bodies will be missing, as well as those who were alive and walking around on earth a split second before the rapture occurred. Their bodies will be instantly changed into resurrected, glorified bodies. So this was different from John's experience because his body remained there on Patmos, but he was taken up in the spirit. Now, furthermore, John was translated into the scenes of heaven only temporarily. We know that after all of this, John came back to his body, however all that works, and he died on planet Earth. And his body still awaits the true rapture of the church in his grave. Even though his spirit is in heaven, his body awaits the the resurrection at the rapture. The church, however, will dwell. Once she is translated, once she is raptured, raptured, the church will dwell in the heavenly city, not temporarily, but forever and ever and ever. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The fact is, though, that... There are many scriptural reasons which do support a pre-tribulation rapture other than just this type here of John's experience. Now, some of them, as I said, are very, very complicated and would take us into some deep doctrinal discourses. You're going to think that that's what I'm doing this morning, but I'm talking about ones even worse than what we're going to discuss this morning. These, if I got into these, I would lose every one of you and you'd never come back again. Um, And they would really take us off track from our Revelation study. But there are others which are relatively simple to explain and to understand. So after I explain, for all of our benefit, a little bit more about the rapture of the church, the doctrine of the rapture, we are then going to get into supporting verses for a pre-tribulation rapture position. Okay, now let's talk about the rapture itself. Did you realize, I'm sure you do, many of you, that the word rapture does not actually occur in the Bible? You will not find that word in the Bible. But did you realize that you will not find the word Bible in the Bible? 
<laughs> Neither will you find the word grandfather. There are a lot of words that you would not find in the Bible, but this by no means means that you know these things aren't a reality. So that is not an excuse to say that the rapture doesn't exist because that word is not found in the Bible. The word rapture actually comes from the Latin word rapere, R-A-P-E-R-E, which means caught up or snatched away. Now this was the word which was used in the Latin translation of 1 Thessalonians 4.17. If you want to turn there, it says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. Repare in the Latin. Together, we'll be caught up together with them, and that refers back to verse 16, which talked about the dead in Christ, those who will come out of their graves, will be caught up together with the dead in Christ in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, other theologians have referred to this event. There's a lot of different names. You'll be doing some of this in your homework. There's a lot of names for the rapture of the church. Some have called it the translation, which is what I used in our title for this lesson. And they get that name from the Latin word translatio, which speaks of transporting or transferring. Because Christ, that's actually what he does. He transfers or transports his church from one location, which is earth, to another location, which is heaven. So another term is the translation. It's also called the blessed hope. It's called the keeping. It's called the catching up. It's called the gathering. It's called the upward call. There are a lot of names for the rapture. The parousia, which is Greek word. Now, there are three key New Testament passages with, which deal with the rapture of the church. And they are John 14, verses 1 to 3. Second key passage is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 53. And the third one is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. Now, I hope you will look those verses up at home and read them. We'll be talking about them this morning, but I'm not going to take the time to actually read through them right now. But when we take all the information from these three scripture passages and we put this information together we come up with six things that we learn about the rapture of the church first of all we learn that Christ will descend from his father's house in heaven to the air above the earth in other words he will go from the third heaven down to the first heaven He won't actually touch earth. That's his second coming. That's the return. But he will come from his father's house in heaven to the air above the earth, and this descent of his shall be accompanied with a shout. I wonder who will do the shouting. (laughs) Probably the archangel, right. And then with a blast of a trumpet. Secondly, what do we learn? We learn that the souls of all the dead church saints, you know, those truly born-again people who have died during the church age, you know, from the day of Pentecost till this event occurs, the rapture, all the souls of the dead church saints will descend from heaven with Christ at this first phase of his second coming. You know, when they died, their bodies went into the grave, but their souls went to be with the Lord in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, when he comes at the rapture, their souls, the souls of all the dead church saints, will come with him 
All right, they will descend with him. Now, when these, uh, I already said that. Okay, third, the bodies of dead church saints. Now, I'm talking about the bodies. I'm getting myself confused. Okay, the souls will come down. Then the bodies of the dead church saints, all those truly born again Christians out there in the graveyard, their bodies will be raised as immortal, incorruptible bodies, and they will be reunited with their returning souls. Fourth, we learned that the bodies of church saints who have not died before the coming of Christ in the rapture will be changed instantly into immortal, incorruptible bodies. You know, one minute they'll be walking around in their flesh, carnal, corruptible, mortal bodies, and in the before they can twinkle their eyes, how do you do that? I don't know. I mean, it's even faster than winking before they can twinkle their eyes. <laughs> they will be changed and they will have a glorified, immortal, incorruptible, non-decaying, non-aging body. Fifthly, we learn that both the resurrected dead saints and the instantly changed living church saints will be caught up together to meet Christ in the air. And the last thing we learn is that the church saints will return with Christ to his father's house in heaven to dwell with him in dwelling places that he has personally prepared just for them. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the blessed hope of the church. And it is, I mean, it's an exciting, I've gotten goosebumps all over me just thinking about it. This is the hope that keeps the Christian purified. And sanctified and, and just waiting for the Lord and always confessing and, and being right. Because you never know at what moment he might come. We will never be separated from the Lord Jesus again. Never after this occurs. Wherever he goes, we will go. And this is demonstrated to us in uh, Revelation 19.14. Because when he returns to the earth at the second phase of the second coming, you know, when he comes to destroy his enemies who are gathered together in the valley of Megiddo at the battle of Armageddon, when he comes to deal with them, who is following him? The church saints. His army. That's us. I mean, if we weren't there with him... Then the promise that Paul wrote about us being with him, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, that would be negated. That's one of the problems with the pre-wrath rapture position, by the way, if anybody knows what I'm talking about, that Marvin Rosenthal and um, Van Campen have written about. Because there are several occasions when the church saints are separated from Christ. They're in his position, the church is raptured, but Christ comes to earth several times without the church saints. That would negate that promise, so shall we ever be with the Lord. It would also negate the Lord's own promise when he said, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Okay, that's why we come with him. Isn't that wonderful to think about? Wherever the Lord will be for all of eternity, we will be with him. I mean, he's our bridegroom. And where would you expect to see a bride? Right there with her husband. Well, the Bible indicates to us that the rapture will occur suddenly, in a moment, as I said, in the twinkling of an eye. And it will not, in other words, be a process which is stretched out over a period of time. Because in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, cannot be a process. It's something, whoop. I mean, there it is. It's, it has happened. And it also states that we shall all be changed in a moment. And so 
this is a, these two facts are a strong case against those who teach another rapture position, which is called a partial rapture position. This, these people believe that only the best Christians, only the sanctified Christians, will be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation while the rest of the Christians are going to be left behind until they get their act together, you know, and they get sanctified and they get good enough, and then they'll have another chance to be raptured some time later on during the tribulation. Well, there's a number of problems with that. Uh, for example, the body of Christ is one body and it cannot be divided, etc. I won't get into that. I do have some of those things in your notes for you. But mainly it would, it, it, is, it isn't... Um, it isn't consistent with what the scripture says that we will all be changed in a moment, not in several moments, you know, over a stretched period of time. The words caught up or repare very strongly indicate a sudden snatching or a sudden seizing. You know, one day Christ is coming to snatch from the world his most precious possession. One day he is coming to steal from this world his great pearl of invaluable price, his redeemed ones of his church, so that where he is, there his beloved whole bride. I mean, what bridegroom is going to want to take just part of his bride to be home with him? That's ludicrous, like the partial rapture position would say. He's going to take his whole bride home with him. Now, the rapture, of course, is not limited to certain denominations or to a certain type of church or to a certain type of religious group. Rather, it involves every individual of the church age who has ever at one point in time voluntarily and sincerely invited the Lord Jesus Christ into his or her heart as her own or his own personal Lord and Savior, the one who has trusted in his death on the cross for his or her sins. That's who will be involved in the rapture. And I truly do hope that every one of you in this room will be included in the rapture of the church so that you'll be looking for the Christ and not looking for the Antichrist. Now, the rapture was a mystery, as Paul referred to it in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52, because that, that means it was something previously hidden unknown to the Old Testament writers who, of course, did not know even about the church, right? They didn't know a thing about the church. So how would they ever have known about the rapture of the church? So it was a mystery. Apostle Paul said this. This is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians. He said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we won't all die physically. That's the part that's exciting for you and I, that we may not have to die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. They always say that's what they should write in the nurseries. (laughs) Church nurseries. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and shall be changed. This has been the blessed hope. And that word, blessed hope, comes from Titus 2.13. This has been the hope of the church since the very beginning. The hope that there will be a generation, of course every generation, since the early church has always hoped that it would be them. Just like we're hoping. We have a much better chance, though. 
because we're at the end of the church age. But they didn't know that. So for every Christian of every generation, they never knew. I mean, the apostles thought he might come before they died. So this is the hope that they will be changed in a moment and immediately caught up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air in new resurrected glorified bodies without having to die. Now, the most controversial issue related to the rapture of the church concerns its timing in relationship to the seven-year tribulation period. And sincere Christians... Born-again people do hold different views on this matter. So please, please understand when you leave here that one's view regarding the timing of the rapture in relationship to the tribulation period has absolutely no bearing on their salvation whatsoever. You know, all of us are going to be in complete agreement one day on this issue. And when will that time come? when we're on our way up to meet him. Then we'll all say, ah, you were right, I was wrong, you know, whatever. We'll all get it straight. Until then, however, we must do the very best that we can to agree to disagree peacefully and to get along with one another. You know, I personally do not have any axe to grind whatsoever. If you want to come up after this lesson and tell me your position and give me your scriptural supports, that's fine. I will honor your your opinion if it's based on scripture, okay? But I don't have an axe to grind with anyone who has a different position than I do. All I want to do, since I'm the teacher, is just demonstrate to you why it is that I personally do hold a pre-tribulation rapture position. In other words, I believe that the rapture occurs before the tribulation here on earth. And I'm going to do this, of course, using God's word. Now, my conviction is that the biblical inferences concerning the timing of the rapture do very strongly favor this pre-tribulation view. In other words, I believe, and I'm going to demonstrate to you why I believe... that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will not enter or go through any part of the tribulation period. Consider, for example, as we've already really done, the chronological event of the, uh, the chronological location of the event that we have just looked at in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the seven successive stages of church history, while chapters 4 and 5 present the prologue to the tribulation period. Now, the Apostle John, who was one of the very first members of the true church, remember he and Peter were the first ones, the first disciples to follow the Lord. And uh, he's the last living apostle as well. So he, he presents a real good type or picture of the true church. Um, And therefore, he presents a good picture of the church being removed from the earth right before the tribulation begins. Now, this would be in perfect keeping with the Lord's promise to the good and the loving church, you know, what we could call the perfect church of the Philadelphians, when he said to them, to the Philadelphian church, the church of the open door, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world. Has there ever been a time that's come upon all the world? No. 
To do what? To try them that dwell upon the earth. That is the promise the Lord gave to the good, true church of the Philadelphians, or the overcomers of that church, which include the overcomers of all the churches, by the way. All the promises made to the overcomers of each church were for the whole church. He made that promise in Revelation 3.10. So in addition to John's translation experience occurring prior to the tribulation period, we also have this promise that Christ gave in Revelation 3.10. Now, to understand how this promise supports a pre-tribulation rapture, I'm going to need to examine with you the meaning of some key words in this verse. Christ said, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. We need to look at the word temptation. The word temptation in the original Greek in which the book of Revelation was written is the word pirasmos. Now, in some cases in the New Testament, the word in either its noun or its verb form is used when referring to testing or trying someone in order to determine or to demonstrate or to expose what kind of character they have, what kind of person they really are. The Lord, for example, asked Philip a question in order to prove, pirazo, him, to prove him. The Corinthians were commanded by the Apostle Paul to examine themselves, pirazo, to determine if they were truly, truly believers. And the Ephesians tried false believers, pirazo, again, the word is used there. They tried them to, you know, in order to expose them. And that we learned about, to expose them as liars back in Revelation 2.2 when we looked at the letter to the Ephesian church. Well, this, that's, so that's one way the word pirasmos or temptation can be used, is used in the New Testament. A second way in which that word is used, in either its noun or verb form, is in reference to tempting or enticing someone to sin. And the most clear example for this comes from the book of James, where we are told that God cannot be tempted. And that word is a derivative of the word perasmos. He cannot be tempted with evil, James 1.13. Now, because we also know that God does not tempt people to sin, would that be in line with his character if he tempted you to sin? No, God cannot sin. Because of that, the conclusion is that the purpose of the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world is to try or to test the earth dwellers in order to demonstrate or prove or determine what kind of character they have, what kind of people they really, really are. Now, a study of all of the references in the book of Revelation that we have about them that dwell upon the earth, or earth dwellers. A study of all the times we find this little term in Revelation would clearly tell us that these are the people who kill God's people. Revelation 6.10 is one example. So them that dwell upon the earth are the bad guys. They are the ones who are killing God's people. You see, therefore, they are demonstrating that they are haters of God by killing God's people. So they are being tested in, you know, to determine what kind of people they really are. And we find out that they are haters of God. Now, another important aspect, so that's a look at the word temptation, all right? Now, another very important aspect of the Lord's promise 
in Revelation 3.10 is the fact that he promised to keep the Philadelphia church saints, the overcomers, from the hour of testing. Okay? Make sure you understand this distinction. From the hour of testing and not just from the testing itself. And there is a critical distinction here. By using the words the hour, Christ was promising to keep the church from the time period characterized by the testing which he had in mind, which was to prove the character of the earth dwellers. Now, if he wanted to promise them that he would keep them from just the testing, then he could have very clearly and simply said, I will keep you from the testing, right? But he didn't say that. His promise was to keep them from the hour of the testing. Now, you'll see where I'm going in a little while, okay? Now, we ask, in what, in what sense will the Lord keep from or separate the church saints from the period of testing, from the hour of testing? And to that question, there are three possible answers. Some have suggested that he will separate them from the testing by shielding them while they live within the period of testing. And, of course, we're talking about the seven years of tribulation. So some have said he will shield them while they are in it. Okay? Now, this would be very similar to the Israelites who lived in Egypt during the time when God sent the ten plagues on the land. The Israelites lived within that time period and even within the land where the plagues occurred. And yet God miraculously prevented those plagues from harming them. In other words, he shielded his own people. He shielded the Israelites. But this suggestion will not work with the Revelation 3.10 promise because Christ used the specific term, the hour of temptation, which was his promise to do more than just keep them from the testing, you know, to shield them from the testing. It was a specific promise to keep them from even the time period of the testing. You see, if you and I live within a time period, then we are not separated from it. And I thought about, you know, we're going into the year 2000. Let's say I make it to January 1st, 2000, but I only live that first minute and then I die. I still have not been kept from that time period of the year 2000 or from the the next century. Furthermore, if the Lord Jesus was merely promising his faithful and his true saints that they would be shielded from the testing while they lived within and through its time period, then he really could have clarified his meaning far better if he had used a different preposition than he did for the word from. He used the Greek word ek. Or, or John did when he wrote this down for us. And that little word, that little Greek word, ek, E-K, literally means from or out of. Now, if he had wanted to mean something else, he could have used the little word en, E-N, which means in. Or he could have used the Greek preposition dia, which means through, so that his promise would have been, I will keep you in 
or I will keep you through the time period of testing which shall come upon the whole world. But he didn't use that word. He used the word which actually means I will keep you from, I will keep you out of. Now, even if the church saints were to be shielded from the testing which God's wrath will bring to all the world in the period of testing that Christ spoke about, there are verses in the book of Revelation. You can, we'll be studying them. We'll be looking at them. There are verses which make it very, very clear that many believers alive on earth during this time, this hour, will be martyred. And this fact certainly would make null and void Christ's promise to shield or protect his saints in and through that time of testing. You see? So if the church was in the tribulation and he promised them to keep them in and through it, then why are they being martyred? Well... The fact of the matter is that, guess what? These are not church saints. The church is gone. These are what we call tribulation saints. These are people who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ after the church is removed. And God, Christ didn't promise them that he would keep them from the hour. He didn't promise them that he'd keep them in the hour. And therefore, many of them are overcome. Furthermore, Revelation 13, 7. Would you turn there just real quickly? 13, 7 tells us something interesting. This is talking about the beast. Now, the beast is empowered by who? Satan. All right? It says, and it was given unto him, that's the beast empowered by Satan, to make war with the saints and to do what? Overcome them? If this is the church, ladies, you know what this means? This means that Satan is overpowering God's church. Who are the overcomers? We are. According to Revelation 2 and 3. If Satan was overpowering the church, what would this mean about the head of the church? We are one with our head, Jesus Christ. This would mean that Christ lost his headship over the church. And that's impossible. So it is, this, is, this is not the church saints that it's just talking about here. I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm getting emotional getting all into this thing these are this is not the church here satan will never the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church he promised us okay all right now yet another answer to the question regarding what sense christ will separate the church saints from the period of testing is the answer which states that the Lord will separate them by removing them after they have been in it for some period of time. Okay, this would be a mid-tribulation position or a pre-wrath rapture position. Now, let me put that up there. If you haven't heard about the pre-wrath rapture position, this is the position that's come about recently. It's the newest position, and it teaches that the church is raptured about three-fourths of the way through the tribulation period. They say that God's wrath does not start until about three-fourths of the way through. I disagree with that entirely because... The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the one who opens the seal judgments that start everything. 
and therefore I see that as the wrath of the Lamb. That is God's wrath right from the very beginning. But anyway, proponents of these two views, the mid-tribulation and the the, um, pre-wrath rapture position, would say that the church saints will enter the time period of testing and that they will experience it themselves for a while, but then Christ will remove them before it ends. Now, wouldn't that be a blessed hope? Well, maybe, maybe we can hang in there and we won't be martyred and we won't be overcome by the Lord. What a blessed hope that would be to be looking for the Antichrist instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this cannot be, even regardless of those arguments I just gave you, this cannot be because Christ's promise was to separate to separate them from the time period here we go back to the word the hour to separate them from the time period and not just from part of the time period he didn't say i will say i will keep you from part of the hour if people as i said live within even part of a time period part of an hour they are not separated or kept from it furthermore there's no need to test what's the whole purpose of this remember when i looked at the word temptation what is the purpose of sending the hour of temptation it is to test or to try the earth dwellers not the church it's to try the earth dwellers in order to determine or prove what kind of character they have what kind of people they truly are he didn't doesn't need to test the church does he does he need to test us no we have already proven what kind of character we have by placing our faith in the lord jesus christ himself we have already been found faithful that's why he said you know he's going to keep us from the hour because we've already kept the word of his patience and besides that romans 5 9 and first thessalonians 5 9 say that god hath not appointed us to wrath Now, another view claims that Christ will separate the church saints from the period of testing by removing them from the earth before that time period ever begins. And this makes sense in light of the Lord's promise here of Revelation 3.10, where he promised to separate his church from the period of testing and not just from the testing or from part of the testing. His specific language... That's why it's so important to look at every word in the word of God and to look at the words in their original language as well. His specific language implies that he will separate or keep them from the entire period of testing. And the only way to keep people from an entire time period is to prevent them from entering into it even into a part of it. Now, if any church saints were present on earth, when that time period of testing began, they would be entering into it. So the only way to prevent them from entering into it at all is to remove them from the earth before that time period even begins, and this supports the teaching of a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, another support for a pre-tribulation rapture of the church is really an argument from silence, but this is a very, very strong argument from silence. There are 24 verses in the book of Revelation which make reference to the church. You can go through them and mark them, circle them if you want to. There are 24 times in Revelation that the word church or churches is is referred to or is stated. Sometimes the church is called the bride and sometimes it's called the lamb's wife. Well, in 20 
of these 24 verses, the church is referred... uh, the church, let me say this again, 20 of these 24 verses refer to the church in the present church age. In other words, we find 20 out of the 24 times the word church is mentioned in the first three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, two of the verses speak about the church at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, where does the marriage supper of the Lamb occur? When does the bride marry the bridegroom? Where? In heaven. So two times out of the 24, the church is mentioned in heaven, and the remaining two verses speak of the church in the eternal future state. Not one of the 24 references to the church on earth are found in chapters 4 through 18, which specifically spell out for us the tribulation period, also known as Daniel's 70th week. Now that is a strong argument uh, from silence because the church just is the only possible mention of the church in the tribulation period could be the 24 elders. But do you know where they are? They're in heaven before the throne of God. This stands in stark contrast to the fact that none of the references to the church in Revelation, um, no, what stands in stark contrast to this, I'm trying to get out of here in time, what stands in stark contrast to the fact that the church is never mentioned in the time of tribulation is that 72% of the references to Israel in the book of Revelation refer to that nation during the tribulation period. So this argument from silence supports a pre-tribulation rapture position because the only explanation for the church not being mentioned at all on earth during the chapters which deal with the tribulation is because she has already been removed in the rapture. We also notice the specific absence of the words, look at Revelation 13, 9. You're already in 13, so look at 9. See what it says there? If any man have an ear, let him hear. What words are missing that we heard over and over again in the seven letters to the seven churches? The words that are missing are what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Again, an argument from silence because there's no mention here of the church. In keeping with this argument from silence, we also have the added fact that none of the New Testament passages and none of the Old Testament passages which talk about the period of the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week, none of those passages mention the church only conclusion, the only logical conclusion is because the church just ain't there in the tribulation. You see, if one understands that the final seven-year period of time, which yet remains to be fulfilled from Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy... This is found in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, what I refer to as the most amazing prophecy in all of the Word of God. If you've never studied it, we have a mini-album available in the foyer, two tapes that tell you all about the amazing 70 weeks prophecy. If you understand that the final seven-year period of time, which yet remains to be fulfilled from this prophecy, 
given to Daniel 600 years before Christ was born, if you understand that that prophecy has to do with Israel and Jerusalem and not with the church, then a pre-tribulation rapture is seen as logical and necessary. In the prophecy, I'm going to finish up with this, so hang in there just a few more minutes, okay? In the prophecy that God gave to Daniel, he specifically told that prophet that 70 weeks of years, and the Greek, I mean the Hebrew word for weeks, speaks of a seven-year period. So he said 70 weeks of years, if you multiply that, that's 490 years were determined for Israel and for Jerusalem. You can read that. It's God's own words in Daniel 9.24. So these 490 years, God said, are going to be decreed for Israel and for Jerusalem. He said nothing about the church. If he had, Daniel would have said, what is the church? He didn't say that. Nobody knew about the church. The first 69 weeks of those seven years or 483 years, took us to the very, you know, if you counted all the days this this would be, that this would be, and this is what makes it so amazing, is that that takes us to the very, very day that the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey on Palm Sunday and officially presented himself to the nation as her Messiah. That's exactly when that 69 weeks of seven years ends. I mean, he told them that they would know their Messiah because of that. That's all in that prophecy. Now, the church did not exist during any part of those first 69 weeks of years or during those first 483 years. God consistently kept the church out of that entire period of time when he was working out his program with Israel. He said to Daniel, this is for your people. What was Daniel? He was a Jew. This prophecy is for the Jews, not for the church. Well, God's program, this 70 weeks program, was temporarily interrupted. At the end of those first 69 weeks, he didn't get through the 70 weeks. It was interrupted. Why was it interrupted? Because the Messiah was cut off. And Daniel predicted that in um, verse 26, 926, or God predicted it. He gave the message to Daniel. So the 69 weeks of years were cut off because Messiah rejected, I mean, Israel rejected her Messiah. He was cut off. He was crucified. And when that was, when that time period was interrupted, then God in the gap began his program with the church. So there is one week of seven years yet to be fulfilled in God's 70 weeks program for who? For Israel and for Jerusalem. You know, this seven-year period of time is known as the time of whose trouble? Jacob's trouble. Who is Jacob? What was his name changed to? Israel. This is the time of Israel's trouble, not the time of the church's trouble. This is going to be the period of time known as Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period. That's how we know it's seven years. We know it from Daniel. We also know it from passages in Revelation. And it was known by the Jews as well. The rabbis knew that the time 
uh, before the Messiah would come to establish his kingdom would be a seven-year period of terrible birth pangs. They called him the Messiah's birth pangs. And then he would give birth to his kingdom. This is in total agreement with what the scripture teaches. Now, there are three strong inferences that we can make based upon Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. All right? First of all, God does not intend for the church to be present on the earth for any part of the 70 weeks of years. He determined those years specifically for Israel and for Jerusalem. He intends to keep his 70 weeks program for Israel separate and distinct from his program for the church. Now this doesn't mean that God has stopped working with Israel and with Jerusalem. It merely means that he has stopped this one specific program for Israel, his 70 weeks program. Um, And in the gap of time between the 69th week, God is carrying out his program for the church. You know, there is a major difference in saying that God stopped working with Israel altogether after the 69th week and saying that he stopped one specific program with that nation. We know, for example, didn't God work with Israel and with Jerusalem before he even started this 70 weeks program? Of course he did. And similarly, he is still working with Israel and with Jerusalem today. That's why he brought her back into the land. He's still working with her. He just is not working with her in this one particular program. This program has been postponed until the Antichrist signs that false peace treaty with Israel. And that will begin the last week, the 70th week, the one remaining seven-year period. The second strong inference that we can get from this, Daniel 70 weeks prophecy, is that God intends for the church to be present on earth specifically during the gap of time between the end of the first 69 weeks of years and the beginning of the 70th week of seven years duration. Now, if God had wanted to mix any part of his 70 weeks program for Israel with his program for the church, if he wanted to mix these two programs, he could have started the church sometime during the 69 weeks. But he didn't do that because he has chosen to keep these two programs distinctly separate. Now the third inference is that God will therefore remove the church prior to the beginning of the 70th week. Because that will be the time devoted specifically to resuming and completing his 70 weeks program for Israel and Jerusalem. Now all other views except the pre-tribulation view have the church going through at least part of Daniel's 70th week. Even though the whole 70 weeks prophecy was specifically stated by God himself to have been determined for Israel and for Jerusalem and not for the church. Okay? Did you get it? Whew. That's not easy. I mean, we're into some deep things here. And 
I really, really appreciate you staying with me. I know that was not easy. There are other supports for a pre-tribulation rapture, but I think you've had about all you can take for one day. There is the imminency of Christ's return. There are a lot of things. His example, for example, with Noah and Lot and Rahab, but you can read about all that stuff in your notes. Thank you so much for being patient with me. I really, really appreciate it. Because we ran out of time during our hour of morning Bible study and didn't have time to talk about the doctrine of the imminency of Christ's coming, I would like to add that to the end of this cassette tape. Now, another support for a pre-tribulation rapture position has to do with the doctrine of the imminency of Christ's coming. The word imminent means uh, hanging over one's head, ready to befall or to overtake one close at hand in its incidence. Therefore, an event which is imminent is one that is always hanging overhead. It is continuously ready to befall or overtake a person. It is always close at hand in the sense that it could occur at any one moment in time. You know, other things may occur first, but nothing else has to take place before the imminent event happens. The New Testament teaches that the church should have the fervent expectancy that Christ's coming could take place at any moment. And therefore, Christians should constantly be watching and preparing for his coming. The concept of the imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ has a strong implication on the time of the rapture of the church. For the pre-tribulation view is the only view that can honestly say that the Lord could return at any moment without anything further needing to occur first. All other views teach that at least part of the tribulation period must transpire before the Lord can come to rapture the church. Furthermore, because the tribulation begins with the Antichrist confirming a false peace treaty with Israel, the church would be looking for the Antichrist to appear before she could then anticipate her Savior's appearance. But the blessed hope of the church is not the appearing of the Antichrist. It is the hope of Christ's sudden return for his saints to remove them from the hour of temptation that will come upon the whole world, you know, to test the whole world. The hope of, of the church is, is the hope of the Lord's promised return to receive believers unto himself and take them to their dwelling place in his Father's house. And this is why the Lord Jesus could say, Let not your heart be troubled in John 14.1, prior to then giving his promise to return for his own. And this is why Paul, after speaking to the Thessalonian believers about the rapture in verses 13 to 17, of chapter two, uh, 4 concluded by saying wherefore comfort one another with these words you know it would be little comfort for Christians to be looking for the coming of the Antichrist and the outpouring of God's wrath upon this world before they could expect the Lord Jesus so both the teaching of the imminency and the teaching of the promised comfort of Christ's return in the rapture support the pre-tribulation rapture position. God bless you.